And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians 3. If you don't, you could pull one out of the seat back in front of you, and you'll find Galatians 3 on page 824. Galatians 3, starting in verse 1, page 824 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. So who has tricked you? Who has fooled you? Who has led you astray? Who has cast a spell on you and bewitched you? That's the uh, opening question that Paul fires at the Galatians in today's scripture. But it's really a question for all of us, too. Because as we'll see in this morning's scripture, we're all prone to the same faulty thinking, the, the same mental stumbles, the same cognitive getting off track as the people were to whom Paul was writing in this letter. More specifically, we're all prone to the mistaken idea that, that whether we're on God's good side, whether he smiles or, or frowns when he sees us, has something to do with our behavior, our goodness or badness, how we're <clears throat> acting at the moment. It comes out in statements like this. I can't believe God answered that prayer. I'd hardly started praying about it. Or... I can't believe I got that blessing. God knows I haven't been very faithful lately. I don't deserve it. Or I tell God I'm sorry, but, but then I, I do the same thing again repeatedly. Do you think God's going to give up on me? It's that gray cloud of guilt over our heads. It's that deep subconscious sense that we've got to perform to be okay, that, that God is keeping score that we're only lovable and acceptable if we're measuring up. That's the way the world works, right? I mean, you, who gets picked for the team unless they're any good? And uh, who makes the honor roll without making good grades? And who advances in their career without somehow scoring points with the higher-ups or the gatekeepers? So it must be like that with God, too. I mean, how else could it be? But there's a dark side to this scorekeeping approach to life, and that's how it makes or how it causes us to treat other people. And so we think so and so is in prison doing 20 years, and he's complaining about how things are so miserable and dangerous in the brig. Well, too bad. He should have thought of that before he committed that crime. Or look at those people on public assistance. I mean, they need to get their life together and get a job. You know, they're a drain on society. Or she doesn't deserve that perk. She hasn't been pulling her weight for a long time now. Bono, the ever quotable rock star, once put it this way. He said, there are two ways that the world can work. Karma or grace. Karma makes the most sense. It's the idea that what comes around goes around. And that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, that, that fair is fair, and that ultimately everyone gets what they deserve, or at least they should. Grace is different, though. Grace may not have much to offer to the deserving, but for the undeserving, grace opens up possibilities. Grace offers hope. So have you ever known a really spiritual group of people, in a good sense, you know, people who, they seem to have an in with God. 
uh, to be in God's red carpet club, so to speak. You know, they, they have that special express line at the ticket counter, and uh, they get to go into that special plush roomy lounge while everyone else is crowded out in the noisy cramped waiting area. These people, God seems to hear their prayers, and uh, they're really godly. The Christian life seems to just work for them. And they're doing all this stuff for God, and everyone admires them. And you're sure they're headed straight for heaven when they die with VIP treatment all along the way. But maybe that all seems kind of out of your reach. You can't seem to get your spiritual life together. Shoot, you can't seem to get your life together. You struggle and you fumble when you try to pray. You, there are sins and there's bad habits that you can't ever seem to break. You don't know your Bible as well as some others do. And, and you get cranky too often at the people you're supposed to love. And you have some, maybe some dark, shameful secrets that you've never told anyone about. Well, guess what? What if God isn't keeping score? What if you don't have to earn or deserve God's favor or blessing? What if, if you can just have it right now for free? What if you can be invited right now into God's in-group? That would be grace. And Paul's message to us in this passage is, who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? Who has tricked you into thinking that it was ever any other way? Well, before we dig into this good news, let's spend some time understanding the context that Paul's writing to here. It's back in the first century AD. Paul had been traveling around the Roman Empire, and he'd showed up in a place called Galatia, which is now part of present-day Turkey. And he told the people there the good news about how God was offering salvation to all people everywhere through his son, Jesus Christ. And a number of Galatians had enthusiastically responded to this message. And they had received and they'd experienced God's own wonderful presence with them, the Holy Spirit. This had happened in a, in a powerful and an unmistakable way with miraculous demonstrations of Jesus' power. And as a result of all this, the Galatians were, were filled with joy and they warmly and they, they hungrily received Paul's teaching and, and Paul's guidance. Well, after a while, Paul felt it was time to move on. There were other places that he wanted to go to share the good news about Jesus. And, and so he left and they happily carried on without him. But then a little while later, some other followers of Jesus visited Galatia. These Christians were from Jerusalem. They were from the mothership. They were uh, from the headquarters, from where Christianity had started. And instead of being encouraged and excited by what was happening in Galatia, these Jerusalem Christians were concerned. Why? Well, because these Galatians had been God's people for a while now, and to tell you the truth, they weren't acting it. In a number of ways, they were still acting like pagans. And they didn't seem to see anything wrong with it. Now, to make matters worse, this wasn't an isolated incident. You see, these Jerusalem Christians knew that the Apostle Paul had a track record of this kind of ministry. That uh, he, he had a track record from their perspective of, of, of cruising into an area, preaching an easy, soft message about Jesus, winning a bunch of people to faith, 
without caring enough to make sure that these converts really started acting as God's people should. Now let me give you the backstory on this. The Galatians were prominently Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And these Jerusalem Christians were all Jews. And in that culture, Jews and Gentiles were like black and white. They downright, for the most part, despised one another. They certainly didn't associate. They, they didn't eat together. And the Jews despised and disdained the Gentiles. And for good reason. After all, the Jews were God's special people. They uh, alone knew the true God. And they had, or God had pledged God's eternal faithfulness to them. And, and God had taken them out of the gutter. God had taken them out of the, the moral cesspool of the world. And he taught them how to live properly. He'd given them his word, his law. And now... Even better, since they'd failed along the way, God had given the Jews Jesus, their, their long-awaited king. And, and God had given them Jesus to, to reconcile them back to God and to establish God's kingdom over the earth. And, and so the Jews knew they were special. They, they felt blessed, and, and they knew they were superior to the Gentiles. And they took pride in, in several of God's blessings, which marked them off and, and set them apart as special. For, for one thing, God had given them kosher food laws. The Jews were a clean people, and so they ate clean food. They didn't eat dirty food like the Gentiles. For another, God had given them a Sabbath, a, a day of rest, a, a day to honor God. And, and third, God had given them circumcision, a symbolic cutting off of uncleanness to represent their purity and their devotion to God. The pagan Gentiles had none of these things. They, they ate unclean, contaminated food. They dishonored the one true God by ignoring his special day, and they were not circumcised. They were basically sinful and filthy. And you know what? Paul didn't do anything about these things. Paul left the Gentile converts in this pagan, unclean state. I mean, the Jerusalem Christians, they, they were happy that the Gentiles had heard about Jesus from Paul and, and wanted to follow Jesus. And they agreed that you needed to accept Jesus to be saved and, and to become a part of God's people. But once you believed in Jesus, you couldn't just stay a filthy pagan Gentile. No, God's people were, were supposed to be clean. They were supposed to be special. They were supposed to follow and obey God's commands, to, to eat kosher, to keep the Sabbath, to be circumcised, to, to um, keep God's laws. That's what God's people did. So these Jewish Christians had come to Galatia to finish Paul's job for him, to, to help these poor Gentiles become fully Christian, fully God's people. Well, the Galatians perhaps hedged a little at this because Paul hadn't said anything about becoming so Jewish. Jews and Gentiles didn't mix in those days. To become a Jew, you might lose your status in Roman society. You, and to be circumcised, well, ouch. But the, the Jewish Christians insisted, Paul really doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, he's kind of a renegade, they cautioned. We're from Jerusalem. We're official. In fact, we were sent by James, the Lord's own blood brother, who is now one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. You can trust us. We know what we're talking about. 
And so they began winning the Galatians over, and the Galatians started keeping the Sabbath. Perhaps they started cooking kosher. They, they studied the Old Testament to see um, what else God had for them to do. And the Jerusalem Christians then started pressing these Gentiles to be circumcised, which of course was permanent and irreversible, so it took a little further consideration. And the Jewish Christians probably pointed out to the Galatians that, that Abraham was the father of the faith, and, and he was circumcised. And his children and ancestors were to be, or not ancestors, progeny were to be circumcised as well. And, and they pointed out that circumcision, it goes all the way back, not just to David, not just to Moses, but all the way back to Abraham. That to be circumcised, that, that, was, that was the sign of being one of God's people, and it always had been. To be, to be uncircumcised had always been to be on the outside looking in. But now that Jesus had come, God was inviting the Gentiles in. They too could be circumcised and could be part of the children of God. This is what the Jerusalem Christians were teaching. Well, it was hard to refute. It, it made a lot of sense, and, and it came on good authority. So the Gentiles in Galatia were seriously considering going all the way and being circumcised too. Well, then Paul finds out about all this. And if you've read the letter of Galatians, then you know that Paul blows every gasket he has. <laughs> he is over the top angry. And in his letter, he accuses the Galatians of being foolish, of being bewitched, and he calls down curses and damnation on anyone who would teach a different gospel message than the one that he taught. He, he says he wishes that those circumcision preaching Jerusalem Christian men, that they would go all the way and cut it all off. <laughs> but why, Paul? I mean, chill out. We're, we're all nice church folk here. There are children present. <laughs> well, what's the big deal anyway? I mean, there's nothing wrong with circumcision. And the Sabbath is good, too. And, and, and the food laws, all the Old Testament laws, they were given by God. And these Jerusalem Christians are just helping the Galatians to be better Christians. They're kind of rough around the edges to tell the truth. But Paul says, no way. This is a huge deal. Everything is at stake here. I mean everything. So let's look at Paul's argument here in Galatians 3 and, and see if we can begin to understand why Paul feels this way. Because this is a huge deal for us as well. So basically Paul makes two arguments in our passage, verse 1 to 14 of chapter 3. The first one is from experience and the second one is from scripture. So first from experience, in verse 2, Paul challenges the Galatians, I would like to learn just one thing from you. So he's writing to the Galatian Gentiles now. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard. And then down in verse 5. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Paul's asking the Galatians to consider what their own experience has been. He's asking them, what happened when I preached the good news about Jesus to you and you believed it? God gave you the Holy Spirit, right? You hadn't started keeping any rules yet. You hadn't been doing anything for God, right? All you did was believe the good news that Jesus was offering to save you and to love you. And God responded to your belief, to your faith, by pouring out his spirit on you. 
And this has kept up, right? It didn't just stop there. All the while, before these Jerusalem Christians came along, God kept giving you his spirit. He kept doing miracles among you as a sheer act of his grace. So why in the world are you now trying to earn what God has already given you for free? New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson puts it this way. He says, the Galatians resemble healthily breathing people who are now being told by the Jerusalem Christians that the only way to breathe is by means of an artificial respirator. No one can deny the efficiency of a respirator for those who cannot breathe by themselves. But if the Galatians are now breathing by the life of the Spirit, to choose a respirator is to choose slavery. Now, two quick observations about Paul's argument so far. First, whatever the Galatians' experience of the Holy Spirit was, it was unmistakable. Because Paul can point to their experience and can say, see, God gives you his spirit. And that's proof that God has accepted you without you keeping a bunch of laws. Think about it. These folks must have known without a doubt that the spirit was present with them. Otherwise, Paul's argument would be pointless. Second quick observation, if you read all of Paul's letters, you realize that for Paul, the Spirit is everything. For Paul, having the Spirit and not circumcision is the sign that you're a part of the people of God. And so here the Galatians, having received the Spirit, is what Paul goes to immediately. He says, having the Spirit is exhibit A, that God has accepted you. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see it there too, that, that that's how the Gentiles get included in the early church in the first place. God pours out his spirit on the Gentiles and, and the apostles stand back and they say, whoa, we weren't expecting that. But God must have accepted them too because he's given them his spirit. The spirit was and is the sign, the evidence that you belong to God, that God has accepted you. And God has given the Galatians the spirit, not because they started keeping the Sabbath or because they were eating kosher or because they got circumcised or were keeping any other Old Testament laws. No, God gave them the spirit simply because they've put their trust in Jesus. That should tell you something, Paul says. So that's his first argument from experience in verses 1 to 5. Then, starting in verse 6, second, Paul argues from Scripture. He turns to the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And like I said before, he probably does this because the Jerusalem Christians were using the story of Abraham to argue that the Galatians needed to be circumcised. After all, Abraham is the father of all of God's people. And, and so what's good for them must be good. What is, was good for him must be good for all of us. Well, in verse 6, Paul points out that actually, long before Abraham was circumcised, he was already accepted by God and invited into God's inner circle, so to speak. Verse 6, quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness means being right with God. It means being accepted by God. And Paul will later use the word justified, which means pretty much the same thing. It means being made right, being made acceptable to God. And so why did God accept Abraham? Only because Abraham believed God. He trusted God. 
And so Paul continues in verse 7, Understand then that those who believe God, those who have faith, are children of Abraham. In other words, you don't become a child of Abraham. You don't become a part of God's people by being circumcised or by any outward means. Rather, you become a child of God by having faith like Abraham did. Now, let me say right at this point that Paul is not doing what they were accusing him of doing and what preachers often do today. Paul is not saying God's salvation is a free gift, that all you've got to do to receive it right now is just to receive it and then go on your merry way. Paul's not quite saying that. No, Paul is saying that if you want to be accepted by God as part of his family, you have to have faith like Abraham did. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, read Abraham's story. His faith wasn't just a quick decision in a moment of emotion one day at camp or in church. It may have started that way, but... but it may start that way for us, but, but it's got to continue as, as a one foot in front of the other, day in and day out, two steps forward, one step back, risking, sacrificing, faltering, falling, getting up again, committed life of faith. Right? That's what we see with Abraham. He's not so good at it at first, but as he goes along, God teaches him to trust. But it starts with trust. It's all about trust. That's the kind of faith that pleases God, and, and that's the kind of faith Paul is talking about. Okay, in verse 8, Paul continues. He points out that way back in Genesis, God's scripture predicted that one day God would extend his welcoming grace to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the outsiders. God promised Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations, Gentiles, will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so in verse 9, Paul concludes... All people from all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Are you getting Paul's point? He's saying that it's always been about faith. It's always been about a life committed to following and trusting and depending on God. That's how you come to be accepted by God. That's, that's how you get into God's family. It's, it's not about your own efforts or, or your successes at keeping a set of religious rules or laws. It's not about trying harder. No, it's about trusting God more. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting God more. God just loves people who trust him. And because he loves them so much, he declares them fully righteous, fully accepted, just because they trust him without them doing anything else to earn it. All right, well, Paul continues in verse 10. And here the argument gets a little more, uh, con it takes a little more concentration. So I've got a slide here to help you. If Mickey wants to put up the first slide. If those who live by faith receive God's blessings, Paul says, then those who rely on keeping God's commandments as, as their way of gaining God's acceptance are actually under a curse, Paul says. And here he quotes Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Then in verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. In other words, is made righteous or acceptable to God because, and now he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. 
And in verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, and now he's quoting Leviticus, the person who does these things will live by them. So let me summarize. What, what Paul is saying here is that there are two ways that you can live your life, and they're completely mutually exclusive. You can live by karma, or you can live by grace. You can live by, by keeping the religious rules, doing everything God commanded in God's word, or you can live by putting your trust in the God who will accept you as a free gift of grace, despite whether you deserve it. Yeah. And Paul says that to do it the first way, to go the karma route, to, to go the keeping the rules route, is to be under a curse. But why? Why is keeping the rules to earn God's favor to be under a curse? Well, Paul gives us two reasons. First, he says, because you have to keep keeping the whole law. Verse 10, you have to continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Every day, you have to keep every law. No margin of error, no holidays, no days off, no excuses for slacking off, ever. Perfection is the only acceptable standard, totally and always. Just being circumcised isn't enough. Just keeping the Sabbath isn't enough. Just eating kosher isn't enough. Just keeping the Ten Commandments isn't enough. You know, what's so maddening and spiritually damaging about Christians who are, are so into holiness, where they make up a long list of, of rules for you to keep, don't dance, don't play cards, don't go to movies, don't smoke, don't grow your hair long, don't go with girls who do some of those things, except they better keep their hair long. What, what, what's so tragic about Christians who make up these kinds of lists of rules to demonstrate your holiness is that they're actually making a mockery of holiness. They're, they're claiming to set a high bar for moral conduct, but instead they're actually dumbing down God's holy standard to something manageable. By focusing only on some of the laws, instead of focusing on every single one. And as a result, they're actually ensuring that those trying to live that way are actually failing to be holy and are therefore under God's curse. Because God has given us the standard already. He's given us his word and he's commanded that we keep every single rule in here Fully, completely, always. To fail to do so is to be under God's curse. Is there anyone who's still in running for that approach? Well, the second reason that to live by the law is to be under God's curse is in verse 11. It's because while, while you're over here with, with this group of people slaving away to, to, to keep the rules perfectly so God can accept you, there, there's another group of people over here who are already enjoying what you're trying so hard to get. You're trying so hard to earn your invitation to the party, and they're already enjoying the party. They're already a part of God's inner circle. They're, they're already fully accepted and completely loved by God. They're already righteous. Why? 
because they've put their trust in Christ. In fact, it's the only way, and they've already got it. And so if you're over here and you're trying to work it out for yourself, Paul says you're under a curse because you've already missed out and you can never actually get in by keeping all the rules. Well, Paul continues then with the good news. Verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy again now, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So how do you escape the curse? Well, you look to someone who will take the curse for you, who will be cursed on your behalf. And that, Paul points out, is just what Jesus did. In the Jewish understanding, to be hung on a pole or a tree or a cross was to be under God's curse. And that's why everyone in Jesus' day had, had such a tough time believing that Jesus really was God's Messiah. Because Jesus was crucified. And to be crucified was to be abandoned by God. It was to be cursed by God. It was to be rejected and cast off by God. God wouldn't let that happen to anyone he cared about. They were damned. That's why they were on that cross. They were under God's curse. And Paul says, that's right. Jesus was under God's curse. He was damned. What better person to be able to redeem us from the curse, but one who bore the curse himself so that we didn't have to. And so Paul concludes in verse 14. Christ redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. There's the Spirit again. Paul ends right where he began. The Spirit, not circumcision, the Spirit, not law-keeping, the Spirit is the sure sign that you're part of God's people. The Spirit is your membership card into God's red carpet club. He's God's presence in your life. He's, he's the proof that you are receiving the blessings of Abraham. And we receive the Spirit, Paul says. We get in only by walking and trusting and living a life of faith. By, by putting our faith in Jesus who, who hung on a cross and took the curse for us and who now wants to teach us how to live as a godly person. So who has tricked you? Who has cast a spell on you? That, that you, that I, fall back into that mistaken notion that, that I need to be doing more, that I need to be trying harder to get into God's good graces. Trying harder, that's the world's way. That, that's the way things are all around us. But that's not God's way. God's way is trusting more. God's way is, is to trust more. Do you want to get into God's inner circle of blessing? Do you want to have what those spiritual people have uh, that, that you look up to? You want to have what they got? Well, you can. You can have it. You have what it takes. Because all you need to do is trust more. And anyone can do that. It might take some humbling yourself. It might take some letting go. 
But anyone can do it. Even a child can do it. Let's pray. One of my favorite preachers, Ron Steele, tells the story of being a young Christian and his church growing up gave a challenge every week for people to commit their life more fully to Christ. And, and week after week, he'd go forward. And, and he'd go forward every week because every week it, it didn't seem to take. Every, every week he'd, he'd go forward on Sunday, but by about Wednesday he, he was messing up again. And so we try again the following Sunday. And, and he said, finally, one Sunday, it dawned on him that it was by grace and not by his efforts. And he said that at that point, he thinks he finally became a Christian. And this is what he prayed. He, he prayed, dear God, I quit. Maybe you need to pray that prayer now. Maybe you've been trying harder. You've been trying hard to please God and it hasn't been working. And God is inviting you to come and simply to trust him. So I'll give you a moment of silence if you want to pray that prayer. God, we live in a world that runs by the rules of karma and um, there's a pride in our own hearts which wants to try to earn your favor maybe that was what we were scripted in by our parents and so grace is unnatural for us but I pray that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts to just trust and receive the fact that you want to let your face just shine and beam upon us. You want to smile on us. You want to say, this is my son. This is my daughter with whom, whom I love. With her, with him, I'm well pleased. God, help us to trust you. Every day, for what we need, for when we do wrong, for when we're trying to do what's right, for when we're struggling, for when we're tempted, for when we're feeling guilty and far from you, I pray that we would trust you and that Jesus would be and provide what we need. In Jesus' name.